Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Western University is busy preparing for the full in-person classes returning this fall. London-based university announced that students living in residence will be required to get vaccinated. What are your master's plans for the vaccinations? Well, we'll talk about that. Racialized groups and those living in poverty are the most impacted by this pandemic. That's according to the Hamilton Community Foundation's annual Vital Signs Report. Foundation CEO Terry Cook will join us to talk about that. And we'll talk to Shirley Williams, a survivor of a local residential school. How does she feel about Canada's reaction so far and what needs to happen next? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We are slowly but surely seeing some signs, positive signs, of getting out of this pandemic and getting out of this lockdown. Different parts of the country, of course, are in different stages of of getting back into what they call regular fashion. Uh, Here in Ontario, uh, we are doing it, uh, shall we say, cautiously, maybe a little more slowly than other provinces are doing right now. But the province's long-term care ministry says it's going to be mandating workers to be vaccinated in order to be employed. If they're not, they're either going to have to show a very strong medical reason why not, or they're going to have to take part in an educational program with the benefits of vaccination. And as Global's Dave Woodard reports, it could be rolled out not just to this ministry, but to many other Ontario ministries. The province's Associate Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Barbara Yaffe, says she's in favour of mandating vaccines. It's a good idea. It certainly make sure that people have the information to make an informed uh, decision. She says with a mandate, it also means we would be better able to determine who still needs to get vaccinated. There'll be much better records about who's immunized and who isn't. Dr. Yaffe also says the plan could be easily rolled out to other ministries like education. While children under the age of 12 were not able to get the vaccine, Dr. Yaffe says she could see a day in the future when you're mandated to be vaccinated as a condition of getting into school. Dave Woodard at Global News. Well, that's already starting to happen in some other institutions. Uh, our listeners in London would know that at uh, 980 CFPL, that uh, Western University and its affiliated colleges uh, living in residence will be required to have at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine as part of the university's plans to return to full in-person classes. So what's happening with uh, other universities? Well, to delve into that, we're pleased to welcome to the program Sean Van Kona, who is the McMaster University Associate Vice President and the Dean of Students. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for the time glad you could join us today thanks for having me bill let's uh, maybe we'll start off with uh, the mcmaster plan obviously we're, we're all concerned about public safety and student safety and safety of everybody on the campus these days uh everybody's dying to get back into on-campus learning and in classroom learning uh how is mcmaster preparing for that sean so uh, we've been working uh really over the last uh, six months uh, or so uh, trying to develop different scenarios. And, of course, things change, uh, have changed, regulations have changed. We're going to make decisions months out. Um, and so we've, we've looked at all aspects of our operation. We've counted on public health advice. We've uh, counted on some of our experts that we have within our uh, research enterprise to, to advise us. And so my, my area focuses on the student life aspect and, and mm-hmm. our, one of those being, being the residences. But uh, I think there's a, a sense of op- uh, greater sense of optimism now than there might have been a few months ago. And it's in large part due to the fact that the, the vaccines are, are rolling out probably more quickly than maybe we anticipated uh, back earlier in the, in the late winter, early spring. Are you working, by the way, on the premise that, I don't want to say back to normal, but come September, the, the beginning of that semester, uh, that there will be a return to campus? There will certainly be a return to campus, and we'll be 100% back to normal. Uh, mm-hmm. In particular, uh, one of the things that we affected are our large lectures. So at this point, we can't 
count on or guarantee that the province will allow large gatherings inside starting in September. And so we, we have lecture halls that, that seat up to about, I think our largest is about 650 students. We're not going to put 650 students in a lecture hall um, inside. So th- that's the one area where I think you, you're not going to see um, change, at least uh, in terms of uh, there'll still be the distancing requirement. If we have a, a lecture hall that seats 150, we might have 50 students in that class, as an example. Um, we're not going to have, uh, at this point, uh, large outdoor gatherings. So you're not going to see a concert for our first year students during welcome week where there are 3000 students in one, in one place. So I think those are the things that will uh, at the very least that will remain um, uh, affected by, by the pandemic, but other things uh, like our residences, we're, we're going to be at about 93% capacity in residence. Our athletic facilities will be open. Of course, there'll be some protocols in place there and we'll adapt as our, as the, the provincial regulations change and as public health guidance change changes. I, I think um, you know, we could see those things change uh, very quickly as we get into the fall and as, as there's a high percentage of, of the population with two doses. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Almost on a weekly basis right now, you're, we're seeing changes in this. And I know our, our friends down in the States are a little further ahead than we are, and I'm not so sure if they're not going too quickly in this. I watched part of the hockey game from Boston last night. There's 17,000 people there. Uh, and I know that, you know, vaccination program down there has been great, but uh, I, there's still a little trepidation, I would think. But there's so many different aspects to this, uh, with uh, yourself and your department and other departments about this as well. And as you mentioned, uh, the athletic facilities could be opening again. I, I don't know, if, is there going to be a college football season this year? Are the Marauders going to play? If so, you're going to have to make some allowances in the stadium too, aren't you? Yeah, I, we're planning on having a season. I'm on the board of Ontario University Athletics, okay. and, and I think you'll start seeing some communication there that I think we're we're looking at uh, have, having a season. Now, that'll have to adapt as, as regulations change sure. again. It's, it's so hard to plan, plan ahead. Um, but uh, And there may be uh, limitations on, on fans in the stands, of course, sure. and things yeah. like that. But I think, generally speaking, whether it's athletics, whether it's in housing, uh, all, all these different aspects that make uh, university, the university experience what it is, we're, we're going to, to push to have those types of experiences available. Um, and again, I think if we look at other jurisdictions, and you mentioned the states, um, you see, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I should note, I'm not a public health expert, but just from, from interacting with them and, and, and uh, paying attention to what's going on, you see the, the infection rates drop, drop off a cliff when, mm-hmm. when you have a population that, that has uh, two doses uh, of the vaccine. So there's, that's why there's reason for hope and optimism come September. Sean, what's in an average year, a typical year, I guess, uh, how many students are actually on campus in residence? Uh, so our residences hold about 4,000 first-year students, and then we have about 200 upper-year students who act as community advisors, uh, mm-hmm. so about 4,200 total. All right, and, and what are you anticipating come this fall? So we're anticipating over 3,600 first-year students and then uh, another 150 to 200 um, upper-year students. The only reason we're not at 100% capacity is that we are keeping aside some rooms for isolation in case we do have students who do fall ill. Uh, we want we want some capacity there to, to, uh, to put students into isolation. So we're essentially at, at capacity. Um, our double rooms will have two students in a room. And what kind of precautions are we? Are you, I, I would assume we we're still going to be following the uh, the, the COVID protocol, the, the the masking and the social distancing. 
Yeah, masking will be in effect um, until uh, the province dictates other, otherwise. Uh, we will be limiting uh, one, one of the areas that's probably um, that we'll be paying more attention to are our lounge spaces in terms of how many students can, can be in those lounge spaces. I think, you know, there is that focus on residents that we have to have. There's also an educational component to this because what students do the minute they step outside the residence will impact them just as much as what they do inside. So are they going to, um, if they're unvaccinated for some reason, are they going to a large house party without, well, a large house party where there are uh, people there without masks and it's an uncontrolled environment. So I think there's a strong educational component here that hopefully um, students will uh, will continue to, to keep uh, their health and safety top of mind. I think it is a challenge, frankly, once, once people have a double dose of vaccine, uh, they're going to feel um, uh, relatively safe doing what they normally would do. So it's going to be an interesting time as more and more of the population is vaccinated. Well, let's talk about the vaccination program. As, as I know you're aware, but we just uh, found out earlier this week, too, that Western University in London, of course, uh, is now mandating that uh, that uh, if you want to be in residence, you're going to have to show that you've been vaccinated. Uh, I, we can, I guess, morph into the vaccination uh, passport situation as well. Uh, what will the policy be at McMaster vis-a-vis vaccinations? So we're not we're not mandating vaccines. Um, I think if you look at Western, what happened there last year, they they did move ahead aggressively with students and residents who were obviously unvaccinated at that time, and so they did have a number of outbreaks. And so my own opinion is that, that part of the reason for this policy for them is to um, is because of that that history and to try to reassure uh, their community that they're doing these extra things now. In my own opinion, I think if you if you're looking at potentially a, a student population that even if so, if you're not mandating it, and you have 75, potentially 80 percent, who knows, uh, of the student population vaccinated. If you've got a residence environment with that many vaccinated, and some of the unvaccinated are dispersed throughout the residences, you're not going to have um, you're not going to have large outbreaks. You may have the odd illness. Uh, but that can also happen with students who have one dose of the vaccine. So I think, and there's a tremendous uh, administrative burden there as you're trying to track and ask for uh, personal health information, see who's vaccinated, who isn't. Then you're you're faced with students who may have legitimate reasons for not getting the vaccine, um, and you're trying to deal with all of those cases. So you can imagine trying to manage that um, that scenario, and to what I think is potentially a limited benefit. Um, in terms of actually managing and then controlling any of the spread of the infection. infection. What about it? So, what, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No. I was going to ask you, what about international students? I mean, McMaster, of course, has a world-class reputation, and people from all over the world want to attend McMaster University. Uh, and and you, what accommodation and, and what protocol will you be using for the international students? Yeah, for sure. And that's that's something that all the universities will face uh, yeah. with the international students coming from, depending on where they're coming from, they may be vaccinated. They may be vaccinated with vaccines that aren't, aren't the ones that we are using here in, in North America. Um, now, all international students in Ontario will be eligible through, um, through our university health insurance to, uh, to receive a vaccine here in Canada, one of the ones that we, we have been receiving. So I think there's that ability. So, and we want to make that as easy as possible uh, for our international students in case they're coming from a jurisdiction where they haven't been vaccinated. Um, so, so I think that that's part of our effort as, as we're uh, getting ready to welcome 
uh, international students here. Now, as well, and, and of course, the federal government could change this, but as they're entering Canada, they have to go through that quarantine process uh, and the testing process. Uh, so if they haven't been vaccinated, when, uh, when they arrive here, they're still going through that, that process to hopefully ensure that they, they haven't contracted anything in their travels here. Uh, but your point's well taken. Here we are having this discussion June 1st. That Even the quarantine thing, that could change between now and August. I mean, there's, there's a lot can happen uh, just been, depending on the vaccination program itself and uh, the impact that uh, the, the changes that, that we've seen in other jurisdictions could have in a situation like this. Uh, some other places of... of just getting anecdotal information about this too, though, Sean, are, are actually trying to make accommodations sometimes on campus uh, for, for, for instance, a vaccination program, uh, you know, for students that, that, that maybe haven't had the second vaccine or maybe not even the first. Uh, that the, how, how easily is it going to be for them to actually get that? I mean, I understand that they may be covered for it, uh, but do they have to go through the same protocol that we do here to, to register on a, online someplace? Or is, are there going to be an accommodation someplace on campus for that to happen? Well, this, at this point, they'd have to go through the same process. I, my own uh, personal uh, view would be that it would be tremendous, uh, tremendous benefit to not only the students, but to the community as well, um, to have the ability for our students to be vaccinated uh, on campus. Uh, when you look at the population, we have 30, uh, roughly 35,000 students in an age group that is highly social um and that will you know are arguably are at uh, a higher risk for contracting the virus no matter how much communication education we do we we know that they're going to be social it's just the, the way the way it is so to enable all our students including those who they might not be international they could be from ottawa living away from home they've had one dose they're not going back to ottawa until at least thanksgiving potentially and so to enable them to get a, a second dose if they haven't have it, had it already early on in the fall, I think it's to everyone's benefit. Um, and so and that, that goes for not just McMaster students, but at, uh, when we look at Mo- Mohawk and Redeemer as well, yeah. when we look at the safety of the community, I, I uh, advocate for, for making it as easy as possible for um, this, these cohorts of students to, to receive uh, vaccines. And, and a clinic on campus is, is one way to do that. We currently haven't, um, we don't have that. Um, uh, that's not going to be available at this point. Um, and I know that there are, of course, uh, constraints around that, resource constraints. There are mm-hmm. unlimited resources that Hamilton Public Health might have uh, to do this type of thing. Yeah, and, and again, that's a moving target as well. And but we seem to be getting some indications from the province that uh, the supply chain is a little more consistent these days, especially when it comes to Pfizer and Moderna. And uh, they are talking about actually rolling it out to, to family physicians and others. So they, I, the, the, I guess the potential is there, but we don't know that yet, do we? We don't, we don't know it. And as you said, the, the, there's potentially room for optimism as we're getting more and more supply, and uh, and hopefully as uh, you know, folks like primary care physicians are able to uh, give out the, the, the vaccines. Um, uh, I'm holding out hope that maybe we can make it a, a, a clinic possible. If not, uh, we just we need to internally at, at McMaster make sure that international students are aware of where they can get vaccinated, how to register, and make it as easy as possible for them to get there and get that vaccine in them. Um, and and so I sh- not just international students, but our domestic students who are living away from home as well.
Well, yeah, and the availability is there, too. As you're probably aware, this past weekend, of course, uh, Public Health held a clinic, well, just down the street from your campus there uh, at uh, Macklin at uh, the health center down there, and uh, thousands, I think, actually took part in that. I drove by there earlier in the day. Uh, so the, the, we'll, we'll talk about that, I guess, as we be a, a little closer to the school year. Uh, I know there's a great deal of anticipation about what's going to be happening, and, uh, and I hesitate, to, as I said, to use the phrase back to normal, but at least uh, back on campus, which is a great first step uh, for everybody to try to get moving on this. Uh, we wish you... Uh, uh, good luck with this, Sean. Uh, we'll stay in touch uh, in the uh, weeks and months ahead as uh, you continue the planning on this. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks very much, Bill. Take care. Sean Van Conant, of course, McMaster University's Associate Vice President and Dean of Students. No vaccination, no mandatory vaccination program at McMaster. Uh, we're checking in at uh, Mohawk College in Hamilton. But uh, as we mentioned, Western University in London is mandating that uh, students have to be vaccinated. And uh, they're also, uh, Dr. Chris Mackey, of course, the Medical Officer of Health for uh, London Middlesex, is also uh, suggesting that Fanshawe follow the same protocol. They haven't responded to that yet. But uh, as soon as we find out, you'll find out. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of anticipation about uh, the uh, vital signs reports. Uh, this is uh, something that uh, the Hamilton Community Foundation has been sponsoring for a number of years now. And uh, especially in light of the pandemic and lockdowns, etc., we were very interested to see just what kind of uh, statistics and what kind of an impact uh, the pandemic and uh, the virus has had on this community. Uh, joining us to talk about the report is uh, Terry Cook. Terry, of course, is the president and CEO of the Hamilton Community Foundation. Uh, Mr. Cook, sir, good to have you back in the program. Hope you're doing well these days. Mr. Cook, that sounds way too formal for me, Bill, <laughs> given that we were former Hamilton City Council colleagues several lifetimes ago. Nice to, yes. nice to be with you. I'm a recovering politician, as you are, so so we <laughs> do this on a daily basis, I guess. Uh, Terry, it's, 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 it's way in the rearview mirror. And, yeah, well, uh, way back, yeah. I've, I've, I've erased it from my memory bank. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Makes life a lot easier that way. Yeah. Uh, let's let's talk about the report here. I mean, we've talked about the impact that, that COVID and the pandemic has had uh, on the greater community, but uh, I, I guess there's a lot to unpack here, Terry, but I guess maybe the first uh, takeaway from this is the uh, this pandemic and the resulting uh, problems that it has caused have had a disproportionate effect on low incomes and people with uh, with social and, and financial challenges to begin with. For sure, um, and let me let me start, Bill, by a couple of quick acknowledgments. I want to thank the folks at the Spec. Steve Bust has done a fabulous job with a feature piece this morning that introduces vital signs. Folks at Cable 14 as well, as well as what you do in terms of helping us to engage the community. I also want to acknowledge that we have a very strong research team led by Grace Diffie in my shop and Dr. Leela Ryan, who work with subject experts to make sure that the methodology and the data is sound. And here's what we found in a nutshell. Um, at, in the early days of this pandemic, there was lots of talk about this being the great equalizer because people that had traveled tended to bring the infection back and they were across socioeconomic lines. Uh, but as the as the pandemic has unfolded, what's increasingly clear is that people living in multi-generational households, people who are precariously housed, people who are working in frontline services, everything from meatpacking plants to driving buses to working in the grocery store, uh, are are much more vulnerable. And they emerge both more vulnerable to the infection, uh, because infection rates are higher by lower-income people and people working in blue-collar jobs, uh, but they also have suffered economically disproportionately. And, and the sad reality is that many of us who have secure jobs where we've been able to work remotely, 
where we own our own home, we've seen the escalation in, in values of home assets, will emerge from this in some ways stronger economically. But for a large portion of this community, the picture is very different and much more dismal. The health aspect is one. The, uh, the economic impact on this has is, is just been devastating, I guess, and brutal for an awful lot of people. And, and, yeah. and, and t- but, Terry, sometimes the numbers don't tell the true story. Because I, I know, for instance, one of the overviews here, uh, they talk about income for some low-income folks actually went up. Well, that's that's an aberration because that's really just because of the government support programs that many of them qualified for. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a false positive, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, what's what's interesting is the 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 CERB relief that went out to many people working in essential services and to some lower income members of our community in many ways mirrored the basic income experiment that the province of Ontario canceled. Right, in that yeah. it said that everybody should at least have enough so that they can put food on the table and have decent housing. Uh, the problem with that is, of course, that it evaporates uh, as, as the pandemic ends and we get into recovery. So we're at a ongoing support to that part of the community economically. It absolutely would provide material and long-term improvements and benefits. But that, in fact, is not the case. And again, when you look at the data, the folks that emerge from this thing in a weaker economic position tend to be people at the lower end of the spectrum who are in precarious work who tend not to have paid sick leave, so they're compelled to show up even in situations where they may not be feeling well or where there may be infection in the workplace. And it's it's both had a an effect on their exposure and their risk to the infection, obviously, because infection rates are higher in lower-income neighborhoods. They're higher among racialized and indigenous people. And, and uh, the subsequent coming out of this penalty is they'll also find themselves economically further behind. And, of course, the other piece that this strongly highlights is the dramatic increase in cost of living, cost of rental, cost of housing. So if you already were precariously employed and living in rental accommodation, we've seen rental rates for two-bedroom apartments go up 25% this year, average Rent for a two-bedroom two apartment in Hamilton is now over $2,000 a month. And if you're at the, the lower end of the income spectrum, that is truly punitive and, and creates all kinds of hardship. Well, and we saw the, part of the aftermath of that, of course, with the tent cities that we saw last summer. And I don't know exactly what's going to be happening this year, but it's, it's a, that's a topic that needs to be flagged, and especially the income aspect of it, Terry. And I know that in, in future uh, work and, and reports, you're going to have to address that in, in greater detail because uh, the, the government, the federal government's already announced the, the drop dead dates where these programs are not going to be available anymore. Maybe remember what eight months ago, uh, there was some talk of maybe morphing the CERB all the way into a guaranteed income program. But that seems to have uh, right. flitted away. Then I don't. I, I'd like to have somebody at least revive that debate and that conversation. But I don't know if it's going to happen anytime soon. But it's uh, it's going to make a bad situation worse for an awful lot of people, isn't it? It sure is. And and you mentioned uh, the the outbreak of conspicuous homelessness. And look at what we know is that homelessness has been a growing crisis in Hamilton for some time. Affordable housing is at crisis level uh, proportions in this community. And, you know, if if there is a saving grace, a silver lining here, let me point to the the critical work, God's work, if you will, of of the HamSmart group, the Hamilton Social Medicine Response Team, who work with folks who are homeless, who, who are dealing with mental health and addictions issues. And one of the reasons that we have 
kept, in my opinion, a reasonable lid on outbreaks in those encampments is because of that critical on-the-ground work in getting people vaccinated and looking after some of the the really critical public health issues that emerge when people are, are living in tents. We've discovered, as, as we've talked to different people that have been impacted by the virus and the, by the pandemic and the lockdowns over the last little while, uh, and, and, I, and I think it's mirrored in the Vital Signs report this year, Terry, that uh, the, the virus and the pandemic and the lockdowns maybe didn't create these problems, but they certainly exacerbated a number of them, as you say, uh, from a financial standpoint, from a health standpoint. Uh, areas of the city that were already identified as trouble spots through uh, not just your Vital Signs reports, but the, the Code Red uh, reports that were so well done so many years ago. Uh, and and it, it, it really, I think, just underscores the problem that some of these inner city neighborhoods, especially the challenged neighborhoods, are having, and the resources just weren't there for them to, to make the accommodation to be able to cope with this. Yeah, so so true. Um, and and you mentioned Code Red. The, the one thing I would remind you of the extraordinary commitment of the spec is that they did a Code Red retrospective 10 years later, yeah. and on on balance, the, the numbers around health outcomes in low-income neighborhoods had gotten incrementally worse. Um, that, uh, you know, the 21, 22-year life expectancy gap between rich and poor neighborhoods, in fact, was in, in some ways heading in the wrong direction. The only bright spots that we saw was where there were specific public policy interventions, and the one that I often point to is is a significant drop in the rate of low birth weight babies, which is a critical determinant of later in life health outcomes for for both mother and child. And and what that suggests to me is where we pay attention, where we target our resources, and where we align good public policy. In fact, we can make a difference. Uh, but on balance, we're emerging from this pandemic with an existing income inequality gap and concentrated poverty challenge in Hamilton that will be worse and more difficult to climb out of. We ought to talk about uh, how this is impacting on neighborhoods, too, and there's, there's two uh, areas there that uh, that I know you've, you've talked about in the report. Uh, overall crime rates were down, uh, basically, I guess, because, you know, there, there was no, nowhere to go or most people were staying in their homes. But the troublesome aspect and the statistic here that jumped out at me, though, Terry, is uh, domestic violence uh, has increased significantly during the pandemic. Yeah, let me let me point out two pieces. The the so there's no question there has been a an epidemic around mental health issues, especially for young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, domestic violence, which we know when people, frankly, are in substandard accommodation, they're feeling all kinds of pressure, and uh, domestic problems t- tend to compound themselves. Clearly, there is an alarming escalation there that. Uh, local social supports and the police have to be mindful of. But the other piece on the, uh, on the, the crime front that I think we should highlight and that is troubling is, is harassment, abuse, and hate crimes targeted at South Asian and Asian communities because of the, some of the stereotyping and ill-founded finger pointing at, at, uh, people of Asian de- descent relative to the, the pandemic. And I think that, that is something that all of our voices need to call out and we need to have a forceful we're all in this together mindset that says there is no place for hate in this community 
And again, something that we've talked about, uh, I know you've also t talked about some of the other groups, uh, including the Jewish community, by the way, that have been targeted, course, yeah. uh, and, and, and the black community, of course. And I know a number of people yeah. are working in the community with you and the other organizations to try to do something about that. Uh, another element yeah. of this, too, that it's probably just it fell off a lot of people's radar, Terry, uh, was, was the substance abuse that has occurred. We know about, a lot more people are drinking alcohol than, and consuming alcohol than they did. But the opioid crisis, that we have talked so much about uh, is still there. As a matter of fact, the numbers are very, very troubling. I mean, it, it's it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, but not for authorities and certainly not for the people that were working on this report for you. Uh, it's it's a real problem. It, 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 we had one of the highest rates of, in the province, of course, here in the Hamilton area, and it's not getting much better, is it? No, it, it is. Uh, it's at crisis proportions. Uh, people are dying. Uh, on, on a daily basis in this community of the opioid crisis, and in some ways that is not being paid attention to in the way that it needs to because of the hyper-focus on pandemic, but the pandemic has compounded that, that problem. It, it also, I think, suggests to me that our, our commitments to harm reduction and safe injection sites that the evidence clearly demonstrates will save lives is a critical additional piece of work that we need to continue to build on, and uh, I, I know that as we speak, the folks at the YWCA, Denise Christofferson's team, are in fact about to launch a, a second safe injection site in this community targeted at vulnerable women. And we at the foundation will be uh, materially supporting that initiative because it, we think it saves lives and it's a critical critical intervention. But there, there, while there have been some supports in that area that we have created, we need to do a whole lot more if we're going to, in fact, get these opioid numbers uh, uh, to a, a level that, that we can manage and, and where we're not unnecessarily putting people's lives in jeopardy. I want to tap into maybe a, a little crystal balling here, Terry, and going forward on this, yep. because you, you sort of set the scene for it with some of the things you've talked about in the report here. Uh, we talk about, for instance, uh, you just mentioned at the beginning about you know employment in the arts, uh, museums and films, et cetera. Revenues are down for the city, which is somewhat problematic. Uh, we're not taking public transit as much as we used to, and, and that, of course, is is a problem, twofold problem, obviously, because people are starting to find other ways, but it's also you know less revenue for the city. Uh, when you look at the challenges, Challenges here, that some of which, of course, have been magnified uh, by the, the pandemic itself. How do you see the recovery going here in this community? Because once we open the doors and step back outside and say, "Okay, let's try to get on with our lives," uh, we got a lot of problems to deal with here. We do, and and you mentioned the arts, and I know for some people, uh, they look at that as a less critical, kind of nice to have priority. Um, but the reality is a majority of artists working in this community are living in poverty. Uh, we know there's been a 48% job loss in the, in the cultural sector. And the other thing we know, and at the foundation we're heavily involved with many arts groups, but I'll use our friends at the Westdale Theater as an example, because we happen to have a good chunk of the mortgage that we hold there. Uh, we have to ask ourselves, how soon will people be comfortable, even post-vaccination, in returning to large audience venues that are absolutely critical to sustainable performing arts in this community and all that it contributes? And my guess is that that is a much longer trajectory in terms of comfort and safety levels for large groups of people. Uh, but I think to your broader question, uh, anybody that thinks that the aftermath of this thing, especially the economic recovery, is going to be back to normal and firing on all cylinders in six months to a year is, is 
probably severely underestimating the trajectory and the difficulty of the recovery. I think we're in for a, a long, difficult number of years before we get back to a, a situation in which uh, there is true sustainable prosperity. And I think the question that begs is, how do we want to build back better and differently than, than where we were when this thing started? Well, and, and I'm thinking also the, the other one, of course, is the hospitality industry and the restaurant industry, which oh. uh, grew exponentially, of course, over the last couple of years, uh, organically. Uh, some, you know, King William Street, James Street, Lock yeah. Street, of course, what are your favorite spots in the city? Uh, yeah. these, these guys have been on pause. They've been on hold now for about the last 17 months. And, and again, we have to wonder how quickly they're going to be able to recover and get back. And a lot of it, as you say, comes down to consumer confidence. Do we feel comfortable going back to those places? And that, that's going to take time. Yeah, I, I have to tell you. I mean, I I I have a personal sense of of uh, ownership and affinity to the restaurant business because my grandparents, I think you knew, ran a fish and chip store on yep. Lock Street for about fifty five years and lived upstairs. And I I know from firsthand experience how tough those businesses are, even in good times. But you know, I I, I think of our friend Jason Casis and the amazing job he's done with his group of restaurants, uh, both in the West End and downtown, and how much carnage there has been there for people who work in food services as wait staff, as cooks, as folks that are, are serving the public. And again, how long it's going to be before they're back to uh, where they were prior to this, which was firing on all cylinders and making an enormous contribution to the well-being of the community. And I, 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 I think to the extent we can, we have been able to continue to support those businesses, you know, in their takeout mode, safe patio mode uh, we need to redouble our commitments to small business throughout this community if if in fact we're all going to come out of this in a in a better position than we went into it and and that sector has been decimated it's a, a snapshot in time but it's a, a snapshot that we need to study and, and understand just exactly where our problems are uh, as always terry uh, thank you so much for the great work that you and your staff are, have done for this report and putting this one together uh, there's a, a, a an all-star team that work on this I, I know you mentioned some of the big sponsors and some of the folks that have been supportive of this but there's a, a lot of legwork that goes into this wow. and uh, it's it's obviously very worthwhile yeah, Bill, we, we appreciate uh, the ability to amplify the message and engage with you and others. You've been a great supporter over many, many years of, of the fundamental underpinnings here. Uh, we do have a, an amazing team that work on this, both HCF staff and community partners. And my hope is that it will energize everybody in this community to analyze how they can make a difference and leave a positive legacy as we think about these difficult challenges, but also some great opportunities. Absolutely. Terry, as always, thanks for this. Uh, stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Likewise. Good to be with you, Bill. Take, Take care. care. Terry Cook, President and CEO of the Hamilton Community Foundation for the Vital Signs Report. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We uh, want to talk about uh, the outrage, justifiable outrage, of course, that uh, many Canadians, uh, hopefully all Canadians, are feeling uh, toward the gruesome discovery in Kamloops Residential School, uh, mass gravesite, 215 bodies of remains of, of children, uh, some as young as three years of age. Uh, and the outcry here has, has been loud and hopefully is going to resonate right across the country, asking uh, our elected leaders to do something about this. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, of course, has reacted to this. He says he was appalled at hearing of the discovery of the 215 Indigenous children's bodies found on the grounds of the residential school in British Columbia. These were children who deserved to be happy. Most of all, they deserved to be safe. As a dad, I can't imagine what it would feel like to have my kids taken away from me. And as Prime Minister, I am appalled by the shameful policy that stole Indigenous children 
from their communities. It, it is unfathomable for, for parents uh, to, to, to know that this went on with other parents, uh, with government sanction, with church sanctions time and time again. Joining us to talk about this is Shirley Williams, a, a professor emeritus at the uh, Cheney Wenjack School of Indigenous Studies at uh, Trent University. Professor, thank you so much for the time. It's a pleasure to have you on the program today. Oh, thank you very much. How did you react, and, and what kind of emotions were you feeling uh, when you heard the news about the discovery in Kamloops? You know, it, it really surprised me because I was on a um, uh, family retreat this weekend. So I, there was no TV, no nothing, no news. So I came home late Sunday night, and I woke up to this uh, news yesterday morning. So uh, it... Uh, it shocked me um, in such a way we knew a long time ago there were some children that were missing, that there was uh, the whole church was still was lurking about. <clears throat> and uh, when I first uh, heard it on TV, when I got up yesterday, I turned the TV on. That's when I first uh, heard it. Uh, you know, it had been told on Friday, which I didn't know. Uh, but um, a lot of things happened. At first, it was, I was okay. And then as the day went on, I suddenly had flashbacks. Of, of so, reminding, reminding you of your experiences. Reminding me of my experiences, yep. Uh, you you wrote a poem, and, and uh, thankfully I've got uh, some lines of it here. Uh, Today I Took, it's called. And uh, it's, a, it's rather lengthy, but there's one segment here I just want to share with our listeners, if I could, Shirley, and then I want to ask you about this. Uh, you talk about it in its fashion. It says, The loneliness set in for no one to hold us, no one to say it's okay, but only to hear, be quiet, or I'll come there and give you something to really sniffle about. Since I only wanted somebody to tell me it's okay, but no, except for an angry voice. And it, it I think, is a very vivid descriptor of, of exactly what was going through your mind. Maybe if, if you don't mind sharing some of your story with us, uh, Shirley, how old were you when, when you were taken to the residential school that you had to, to attend? You know, I think my father, when I reflect back now, I think my father was very smart. Uh, the priest came to, uh, and the Indian agent came when I was seven years old, mm -hmm. that uh, they were going to enroll me then to for my education. And my I remember my father being so angry that he hit the table, <clears throat> and my mother being a hostess uh, gave them tea, and the tea spilled. He hit the table so hard that the tea spilled onto the table, and the, the saucers that were there. Saying that he was he was not willing to to uh, send me to the school, you're not taking my daughter until she's ten. Now I didn't know English then, but I knew he was very angry. And it was only the next morning for breakfast that he told my mother uh, that he wanted to to keep one of his daughters at home until she was ten, and that was me. And um, because he said all the others are coming back not wanting to learn about or continue to learn about our culture. They don't want to speak the language. Therefore, I want to keep one of our daughters who will carry that on, hopefully, he said. 
So that was the message that I got. But he said it in a language so that I could understand why he was so angry the day before when the priest came. The only thing that he, I remember him also saying, the only reason why they believed me, he said to my mother, is that I promised him that I would teach her the catechism and I would homeschool her. The only thing he says, ha, 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 he says, the only thing I didn't tell him, he says, I didn't tell him that I was uh, not going to do it in English, but I was going to do it in the language. So, so you, 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 you had to fool them, basically, to get it. What, what, what some people, I guess, would describe as a stay of execution. You got to stay at home for a while anyway. Yes, I got to stay home from 7 till, until 10 years old. So he didn't let me uh, go until I was 10 years old. But I, I sort of paid a high price for that eh? because everybody thought I was stupid, that there was something wrong with me because I was 10 years old for grade one. So you started in the same spot you would have started at seven, notwithstanding the fact that you were three years older and that you had some education. They, they didn't acknowledge any of that. No, they didn't acknowledge. Um, you know, they taught me everything, uh, not in English or anything. What they taught me was about the culture. They taught me about the plants and trees and medicines and um, all kinds of things. If you ever read a book of, um, called Trolley, which is at the goodminds.com in Brantford. I wrote a book, first book about my life in my early childhood. And the reason why I wrote that book was my nieces and nephews are all, were always coming to me asking me, what was it like in a residential school? What was it like before you went to residential school? So I wrote that story. It's before entering the... Um, the uh, residential school. Right now, I'm on chapter nine for the duration of uh, going to residential school. Were you scared when you went there? Well, yes, I was scared because I was alone, but uh, my sisters already prepared me as to what I would encounter and what they were going to do. Yeah. We've heard so many stories, uh, Shirley, and I know you can relate to them in the, in the book uh, that uh, of the treatment of of the way that that you as as a well, I hate even a student because you were basically there to be indoctrinated uh, into North American society. I mean, they didn't want you to know your culture, they didn't want you to know your language, they wanted you uh, to to be an advocate for their faith and for their language, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It, uh, it had to be extremely intimidating and, and frightening for you on a daily basis. Oh yeah. You know, for a long time after I came out, I was wondering, um, I had to, uh, I was always listening to somebody who would be walking behind me or um, just paying attention to different things. Eh? And I was always listening to the bell. Um, when I went, when I finished, when I got out when I was 16, which is I call liberation, I had told my parents that I would help them. I didn't want to go back to the school. Because not because of education, but because of the treatment. So when I um, was staying at home, I said I would help my mother. So the first day that I stayed home, my mother was working and she was doing her craft work and sewing. Uh, craft work, as she sold um, 
at the store so that she could get money so we could buy food. And, uh, you know, she was expecting me to help, but I didn't know um, <clears throat> why. I sat beside her, just watching her, and all of a sudden she said, Shirley, he says, why are you sitting here? And I thought, yeah, why am I sitting here? And he says, you know, Shirley, he said, she said, there are so many things that we can do as women. Enough daylight in the day for us women to do all of the things that we need to do. He says, just look around. And that's all she said. She didn't get mad because I was sitting there and not doing anything. So I sat there looking around. I thought, oh, yeah, I could wash the floor. I could get water, um, you know, to wash dishes. I could haul water to do clothes and things like that. I began to think ahead of time what I could do. But I wasn't moving. And it took me three nights to evaluate why I was sitting there not doing anything. And what I came up with, I was waiting for her to ring the bell so that I can move to do the things, you know, to do the things that I was supposed to. As you were trained like to do at the school. Yeah. yeah. So Respond to the bell. Yeah. So the bell always rang for us to do things. When to move, when to get up, when to kneel, when to pray. Uh, that bell really, really um, almost destroyed me, you know, because... Uh, I, I was waiting for it. It took me a long time to, to find out why the bell was so so important to the nuns. And the reason why I came, uh, I found the answer when I saw the film, when the, uh, when the uh, St. Mary's uh, bell, when St. Mary bell rings or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's a film, uh, it's an old film. And it is about the, um, the nuns and the, and the priests and things like that. This is where I found out why the bell was so important to them. The bell was to call the souls of the people. You know, to move. Uh, uh, but you were trained in almost a Pavlovian response there. The only th- you, you had to wait for the bell to do almost anything. Yep, that's right. How do you how do you deal with that now? And in special in light of what we just heard about Kamloops, I mean, the two hundred and fifteen, the remains of two hundred and fifteen small children. Uh, the the questions that need to be asked here, surely, are questions I'm sure were, were in your mind for many many years. Uh, you know, why did this happen? Uh, how did these people die? We don't we know nothing about what went on behind these doors, do we? No, we don't know. Um. Probably from sickness or, uh, you know, there was a Spanish flu that went in uh, mm-hmm. right. early 1900. And, and um, you know, the, some kids were punished, uh, you know, severely punished. And they probably died. That's what I'm thinking. I don't know. how. You know, there- uh, there's some truth in that. Because uh, sometimes you would see children... Uh, being strapped so so hard, and then uh, they would be sent to bed, and then we wouldn't see them. Uh, we would be off to school when the bell would ring, and then we'd leave that uh, that child in the or a girl, and we wouldn't see that girl again. And they would say, "Well, they took her to the hospital." That's all they said. We never knew, you know, what happened to that girl. 
Well, there are stories, as you know, of course, uh, from many of these schools of, of physical and sexual abuse, malnutrition, disease, as you mentioned, was common. Uh, there's a, a, a cry now from uh, a number of First Nations uh, leaders, uh, surely, uh, to investigate the grounds of all of these schools, where these schools once were, uh, and using maybe the same you know, ground-penetrating uh, radar uh, to try to identify if there are, are more remains in the, these other facilities. Uh, do you support that idea? Yes, I do. I think all the schools should be um, should be investigated because probably uh, there's been a lot of things going on. Um, you know, they hit bodies, even though there are nuns and priests and things like that. You know, uh, they did things that uh, that were not that were not proper. How do you feel now? Are you, are you this 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 is making you relive this whole thing again, isn't it? I'm reliving the whole thing again. I do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this. I know how difficult it is to to, to conjure up these memories again. They probably never left you, but I mean, to, to bring back the, the feelings, the angst that you were feeling, the, the fear that you were feeling uh, for so many years. And uh, sadly, there's there's more to be told about the story, I'm sure. Uh, we, we want our, our elected leaders to respond to this, and we want uh, to ensure that the truth gets out about exactly what happened, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Well... You know that um, we got to do a lot of healing, and uh, the um, non-native people, the history has to be told mm-hmm. exactly as it may be. We have to tell these stories. What I've been hearing is, oh, get over it. You know, when we psychologically, it had an impact on on native children, on a human being. It could be any kind of human being. You know, it doesn't leave uh, a person until there is healing or some kind of uh, restitution to make that person uh, become whole again. For me, I had to learn a lot of things to go and get that child that I left at residential school. Even way after, you know, I I grew and got married and things like that, um, I had to... I knew no one was coming to rescue me or to restore me, and I had to I had to do that myself. I went back to school, but I didn't know why I went back to school, and that was for me to take um, to study myself. You know why I was feeling mm-hmm. so bad, why I was uh, being called squaw. You know, good for nothing, just from good for one thing. You know, why is that? So um, I went back to school and I took psychology to try and learn about the residential schools and the asylums and institutions. So uh, the psychology really helped me to understand why why I was feeling like that. Surely we're... What I had to do. We're just about out of time here. I thank you so very much for this. uh, And thank you for spending some time and explaining to us, I think, as you mentioned, the healing is so important here, but the healing can't begin until the truth comes out, and we have to make sure that that does. Uh, please take care of yourself, and uh, thank you again for this. It was a pleasure having you on the program. Okay, thank you very much. That's uh, Professor Shirley Williams, of course, Emeritus Professor at the uh, Cheney-Winjack School of Indigenous Studies at Trent University, and also a survivor 
of a residential school scenario. Nightmare, I guess, is maybe more to the case. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.